Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we explore the 1930s, the Great Depression, and we start with a very simple question, how did the music industry survive? But that question leads to more complicated concerns. For instance, how did the music of the time reflect or perhaps deflect from the troubles of the era? Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. is an ephemeral time art. Let's unpack that a bit. It's ephemeral in the sense that as I play it for you, it disappears into the past, right? It's not an object the way a painting is. You can say, well, there's a temporal aspect to looking at a painting, and that's true, but there's also an objecthood to the painting, which music seems to lack on its own, right? So when I'm playing something for you, if you want to hear it again, I have to play it again. We have to go through that same time cycle. That's the other part, of course. Of, of music is that it exists in time it's not an all at once some composers like Mozart said that he understood his music as an all at once that's how he saw it and then he, he sort of transcribed it from there but that's not how we experience it and, and who knows exactly what he meant by that anyway right the way that we experience music is in time it has a beginning a middle and an end and when we're list- when we're in the middle the beginning has been in the past we retain it to some extent in our memory but it's in the past so therefore when i'm offering you a piece of music i'm offering you an experience of time and there's a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to that. Uh, I divide up the time into, uh, into measures, right? And notice that word, measures, right? I'm measuring time in a quantitative way. But there's also a qualitative way in which I'm offering you time, right? Um, and, uh, think about how we experience time. Sometimes things go by quickly. Sometimes things go by slowly, right? Even though uh, what we're talking about is, let's say, an hour, Right? I have an hour of something I'm doing that's fun and it goes by like, like a snap or I have an hour where I'm doing something I don't want to do, cleaning toilets, I don't know, uh, and it takes forever. Right? Music plays with that aspect of time. Music seems to be able to elongate and contract time. It creates that qualitative sense of time as diversion. Time is play, a break from the doldrums of regularly ordered life. So music is an escape from one sense of time into another, a more liberating time. So when I'm selling you music, I'm in essence selling you time and an experience of time. But the question becomes, how do I sell you music? Now, I can sell you a performance, right? But performances are essentially limited. I can only be performing in one place at a time, until modern media. Now, of course, I can be performing in all sorts of places at a time. But that's a later development. We're, we're, we're heading to the 1930s here, right? So if I'm going to sell you music as time, as diversion, I have to put it in some kind of objecthood. And obviously the original form of that objecthood, and one that was still very much uh, in, in service uh, in the 1930s, was sheet music. The sheet music industry came into its own in the 1880s, right? Um, and that's when it becomes mass-produced. Uh, there, there had been sheet music before that, and, and there were some elements of mass production, but it wasn't a big industry, really, until the 1880s and the rise of so-called Timpan Alley in New York City, where uh, on 28th Street and uh, the environs, there were several sheet, publishing, uh, sheet music publishing um, agencies, businesses, uh, that were cranking out tunes and selling them. And they were involved in what's known as vertical integration. That's a business term, right? Meaning that they're not just, it's, these agencies aren't just people creating sheet music or writing songs that will then be put in sheet music. All the elements of the production are in-house. Thus, vertical integration, right? You can start at what we can take to be the bottom, 
Well, which actually for the sheet music industry was largely coming up with titles. The first thing to do was to come up with catchy titles. And then you that they had some some of these um, businesses had someone set aside to just come up with titles. And then they would supply that to the songwriting team, usually a lyricist and a, and a composer, right, who play piano. And they would hammer out a bunch of tunes uh, based on these titles. And that would go to the um, person who was supervising this, sometimes the publisher himself, sometimes someone working for the publisher, who would pick what songs would be worked up, right? And then they would play those for um, various professional singers to see what's going to catch on. Um, then you have to make... Uh, copies, professional copies for those singers that are usually done on cheaper paper. But as you've decided to market this particular song, you move on up to, to a sellable copy on better paper uh, using better ink. And that has a cover. So you have a cover design, a cover artist designer there on staff who creates something that's attractive, that's going to look good on your piano and so on. So all the elements are there, vertical integration. And then you have a commodity. And you can sell that commodity. You have pluggers, uh, song pluggers that go out and sell it. And of course, by the time we get to also really the 1880s, but, but as far as big business is concerned, the turn of the 20th century, and even then it's still a novelty item, you have the phonograph or the gramophone, depending on what model we're talking about. We don't have to make a distinction about that today. That's not to our purposes for today. Now you have performances that are captured in in wax ultimately right and that can then be distributed mass distributed at first for just listening booths and so on and then eventually for home use and so you have here two competing products and there's there's of course a third which are the piano rolls right um, but that works on a somewhat similar manner to the phonograph so you have these competing models for the objectification of music and so what we're dealing with when we're talking about mass culture, well, any kind of mass culture, not just music, but also music, is you're dealing with art and commodity. I don't want to underplay the art part here, right? There's an art to creating this. Sometimes we do underplay it, but I don't want, I don't think we should. Uh, but there's also the commodity aspect. There has to be something to sell. But not only that, obviously you had to have something to sell, but you also had to have people buy it. Now, in one sense, that seems obvious, but let's think about this for a second. You have to have a market. If phonograph records start off as a novelty, that's only going to go so far. You have to create an environment where people want to buy these things. Part of what you're selling is the desire to buy more. You're offering an image of oneself as a consumer. Now, you might scoff at that. You might say, well, I, I, don't, I don't think that the meaning of my existence is in consumerism. Consumerism is something I do on the side. But that's not entirely true, and you kind of know better, I'm sure, right? You're, you're bound up in the things that you buy. They say something about you, and we've learned to believe that they say something about you. Think about the difference between this and, and say, an, uh, an old uh, barter system in the early days of the United States where you just buy the necessities locally from other people that are producing it. And, yeah, you know, uh, Frank down the street makes a better sweater than, than, than Jake uh, further down the street. So you buy from Frank. But that's about it, right? Now, in modern consumerism, the idea of what you buy is, is not just to fulfill a need, it's to create an image of the self. And records quickly play into that. Slowly over the course of the 1910s, the technology becomes slowly better and better, and they begin to eclipse sheet music sales. In 1919, for instance, that was the first year when a hit song was popularized by a recording before it was even released on sheet music. This was the song Mary, uh, composed by jo George Stoddard, um, and the recording was on Victor, it was Joseph C. Smith's orchestra. It sold about 300,000 copies in three months, right? By 1920, you had the first two million selling record, and that was Paul Whiteman's Whispering, backed by Japanese Sandman. And really, it's in that era where the record companies are beginning to gain ascendancy. By 1910, there were three major companies. There was Edison, Columbia, and Victor, right? There were several uh, smaller uh, companies that were quite vital, that did quite well. OK, Brunswick, Jeanette, uh, Paramount, HMV, and Vocalion, for instance, right? 
1921, that was the first time that the record industry made over $100 million. The record industry as a whole made over $100 million. Now, by 1925, there's a dip. Right, owing to radio, because radio starting um, already by 1923, radio starting to become more and more of a presence. So there's a dip in in sales down to 59 million. But then by 1929, it's up again, up to 75 million. Not not the high of 1921, but still. But then of course comes that year comes the uh, the stock market crash, and therefore these huge dives in revenue. In 1930, the record industry only makes 46 million. In 1931, $18 million. And in 1932, $11 million. 1933, the nadir, the darkest point of the Depression, they only make $5 million. So you're plummeting, right? From just a little over a decade prior to that of over $100 million down to $5 million. The record industry is suffering. And the question is, how does it even survive? Now, there are some straightforward business answers to this. Right? RCA buys Victor in 1929. RCA is the Radio Corporation of America. And that's going to be an important part of our story today. Right? This is conglomerations and corporatism that we're talking about here. That Victor is not making it on its own. As in, in, within its media or medium of the phonograph record. Right? And so it, it unites with it's competition in essence because radio at first had been a competition for um, for recordings as objects. And so now the radio is absorbing um, the record companies. And we'll see that happens more and more. RCA owned NBC already, right? Uh, it, and it was in turn owned by AT&T, General Electric, and Westinghouse. And thus it's a huge conglomerate. RCA also developed RKO, a film production company. And so you see now where we have telephone companies, electric companies, right? Um, uh, radio and uh, film and phonographs all merged together. And we'll see a similar thing happens with the other um, big three, uh, the other members of the big three or, or, well, Edison, we'll see, has a different story. Warner Brothers um, purchased Brunswick, right? One of those small uh, companies, which had absorbed Vocalion and Aeolian in 1929. Warner Brothers, of course, the film company, right? They sell it in 1931 to ARC. ARC is the American Record Company. And this is a group designed to buy out failing record companies. And then they sell the catalogs at deeply discounted prices that suit the Depression, right? So very cheap recordings. ARC also buys out Columbia. So there's our second major company. Remember, the major companies were Edison, Columbia, and Victor. Victor is absorbed by RCA into this huge conglomerate. And ARC buys out Columbia Records for a very low price in 1934. And then later in the decade, in 1938, CBS buys uh, Columbia. So again, a radio corporation buying a record company. Moreover, of course, CBS had already combined with Paramount Pictures. And so once again, we have that uh, minimum of a triumvirate, right? Of a record company combined with a radio corporation combined with a film company. Now, Edison dropped out of the picture in in 1929, uh, right as as the stock market was crashing, uh, the Edison company folded. So now what had been the big three, Edison, Victor, and Columbia, for a while, really, there was no big corporation, right? Uh, Except for maybe Victor. Um, Columbia was part of ARC, and so not, not very important at all at all, um, and Edison's gone. But in 1934, a new major uh, company emerged with American DECA, right? Uh, And this was British investor Ted Lewis, who hired Jack Capp, who had been head of Brunswick, to head this label. Uh, Capp brings with him Bing Crosby and a bunch of other stars from Brunswick to uh, DECA. And in a kind of odd circumstance, uh, Deco winds up being a great success in the midst of the worst time to try to be a great success, the, uh, the Great Depression. So by the end of the decade, there are now three new majors, or two old ones, and, and, but, but reconfigured, and a brand new one. So there's Columbia, which is now combined with CBS, RCA Victor instead of just Victor, combined obviously with the Radio Corporation of America, and then DECA, right? 
Now, it's amazing in one sense that the music industry survived at all, but what's even more astounding is that by the end of the decade, while the country still suffered, it started to rebound to renewed health. The numbers started coming up again. They were selling again. Now, what must be understood is the price the music industry had to pay for this survival, right, and the consequences of its means to recovery. And the short answer is what we've just seen, corporatism, the creation of a highly stringent system of production and dissemination. If the 1920s was an era of experimentation and innovation, the 1930s started to tamp that down. Now, part of you, especially if you're familiar with the 1930s, you're going to rebel against what I just said. And I don't blame you. The 1930s is one of the great periods of song production. Many of the th songs that we consider standards were created in this decade. And we're going to return in a moment to think about why that would be. But the question for now brings us back to our opening point. That music, popular music, is always both art and commodity. So sure, the 1930s were a great decade for song production, for the art of music. But at the same time, as we just saw, they were a time for renovating how the business worked. And the question is, how do those two things relate? Does the change in, in business structure alter the art of the music? Let's think about that next. celebrated ways of approaching the relationship between economics and various cultural formations, for instance, uh, legal structures and politics and governmental structures and, and also culture, right? Straightforward culture like uh, the arts and, and so on, philosophy. One of the most powerful ways of looking at that relationship between economics and all of the various forms of culture in a society is, of course, uh, derived from the writings of Karl Marx. And this is the very famous so-called theory of the base and superstructure. And it's probably the most famous contribution of Marx uh, to many people's minds. Right? If, if, they, if people know one element of Marx, it's probably the base and superstructure. And yet, according to such famous uh, Marxist scholars as Raymond Williams, this is also one of his most misunderstood concepts. And it might be because he never really, he spells it out sort of in passing in several different places. One of the most famous places is, is in the contribution to the critique of political economy. And I'm going to read you that section and we'll take it apart a bit. Let's, let's preface it with a sort of baseline understanding of what we're talking about, right? So you have these two cultural formations, the base and the superstructure. And the base is the modes of production, the economic uh, status of a society, right? The economic structure of a society. So in the case of what we're talking about in the 1930s, we're talking about not just capitalism, but really corporatism. The, the increasing emphasis on conglomerates and hyper-organization of the economic field. And the basic understanding of the base and the superstructure is that that economic foundation then influences religion, thoughts about religion, about um, law, about philosophy, about art. Right? So let's look at the section from a contribution to the critique of political economy. Marx here writes, in the production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations which are independent of their will, namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. Now, we can easily get lost in the words there. That's just the first sentence. Let's take that sentence apart. What he's saying that is that what we do in our lives is we socially produce our existence. We don't 
unlike what what someone like Sartre might believe, right? If if you buy that this is what he believes, uh, we don't just decide what we are in the world. We're thrown into a social situation, and we contribute to that social situation. So we didn't decide on just basic things like what's the minimum wage, what is it to earn a living, when is the right time basically to move out of your parents' house. All of those things are social assumptions, and we don't follow them all uh, just simply um, in lockstep with everyone else. We, we work out our relationship to society, but we didn't decide what that society is, and we can't just change it individually by saying, oh, I think it should be otherwise. In fact, it's very hard to change it, as we all know, even if we get together with a whole bunch of other people that think it ought to be otherwise. Otherwise. So society is, is invested in continuing its own sense of stasis, right? Society desires stability. And that's part of what we look to society for, is a sense of stability. But what that amounts to is us entering into what, what Marx calls a set of definite relations, right? I relate to my parents and to my children, and to my cousins, and my uncles, but also to my neighbors, to the people I work with, to my students, to my old teachers. I have a, a network of relationships that are social relationships that help define what I am. And they're independent of my will. It's not that I didn't choose any of them, obviously, right? I choose my friends, at least to some extent. Although, you know, my, my closest friends, I guess I grew up with. I, it's not like I chose to be born in that neighborhood, right? So a lot of these relationships are at least partially independent of our will. And the, the, the deepest part that's independent of our will are those relations of production. The fact that I live in a capitalist society, not just a capitalist society, but an age of, of consumerism, not just an age of consumerism, but a sort of hyper-real age of consumerism where things are advertised to me in the most sort of ingratiating and exploitative manners, right? I mean, think about your phone. You, you recognize this already. Your phone's listening to you. If I say, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of, about getting a new iPhone or something, all of a sudden all these ads come up on my, my Gmail and on my phone, right? If I mention a certain band, the ads come up. I don't, I'm not being paranoid here. That's how advertising's working now, right? So I live in a period of capitalism that is hyper-involved in my life. And Marx says, we didn't choose that. That's, that's a big part of what we are. That's part of the economics, or, or, or the ads and so on, come out of that underlying economics of, of really a late-stage capitalism in, in our case. Now, he goes on to write this. The totality of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. Right? So, so those underlying economic foundations lead to the legal and political superstructure. In this passage, that's all he says. Later on, he talks about art and philosophy. Um, but in this sentence, all he's talking about at this moment are the legal and the political. So you can think of it as, as well, in a way, this is almost um, common sense, right? That, of course, the, the way that the law works is going to reinforce the way that our economics operate. Right. Uh, the, the point of the law is to keep society running. And if society is running through economics, through, through our material productive relationships to each other, then it's the law is invested in keeping those um, those wheels running smoothly. And the same thing applies to politics going on. The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political and intellectual life. So now we're bringing in the intellectual. This is the famous line. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. I'll read that part again. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. In short, what he's trying to say is our modes of thinking, our philosophies and so on, are, are, and I don't mean just highfalutin philosophy of, of the famous philosophers. I mean just our way of dealing with the world, how we think our way through the world. All of that is conditioned, Marx suggests, through the underlying assumptions of that economic base. 
And so the fact that we relate to each other through capitalism imports a whole lot of ways of thinking that follow from that. I'll give you a very straightforward example. The ideology of capitalism, right? And you hear this over and over again in politics. The ideology of capitalism is based on the idea that one individual has something of value that another individual wants and that the marketplace is a meeting of these individuals who ideally at least trade evenly. And that's the, that's the underlying assumption. But that's an ideology, right? And we know capitalism doesn't actually work that way. Uh, simple examples are look at the exploitation of the third world when it comes to major corporations like Nike, where you still have in the modern age sweatshops. That shows you that capitalism isn't about one individual meeting another on an even playing field. And yet the ideology of capitalism is. Now, what that means, of course, is that we have this heightened concern with the individual. Not all societies in the past did that. Right? It's, it was, this idea of the self-actualized individual is a fairly recent concern in the history of, of, of human beings. Right. And so what Marx would say is that that follows from the ideology of capitalism and therefore it follows from or well, rather the ideology of the individual follows from the ideology of capitalism, which is a kind of self justification for how things are actually working on the in the economic field. Now, like I said, this is a determinist model. And without a, a certain level of determinism, it is uh, pointless, right? If you just say, well, uh, the economics determines the, the ideologies and the ideologies determines the economics and therefore everything determines everything, well, then it's a pointless exercise, right? If, if everything determines everything, if everything conditions everything, then there's, there, uh, there's nothing uh, that we're really saying there. We're just saying that, well... Everything affects everything. That's uh, in, a, in some kind of uh, recycled system. That's not what, what Marx is after. But at the same time, it's not what a lot of people take Marx to mean, which is that everything that we think simply comes from um, economics and there's no freedom of thought. Obviously, he doesn't mean that. Because what is he doing? He's writing books to influence your way of thinking, hoping that that will then have an effect, right? That that will then help you change the way society works. So obviously he thinks that thought is important. It's not just purely determined. And yet there is a, an element of determination at play or else again, there would be no point to the, to the theory. The problem here is the way that people tend to read base and superstructure is that they do exactly what Marx wanted us not to do. They reify it. They make these things into objects, into abstract but solid things. And that's precisely what Marx was attempting to guard against, right? The economic field is not static and neither is the ideological superstructure. As you know, if you listen to, to music, for instance, popular music, it's changing constantly. It's not static. And Marx, I don't think, would buy into the sort of Adornian Theodore Adorno's argument that at least when it comes to popular culture, it really is static, that all those changes are surface level changes that, that are um, hiding an underlying stasis where we're just taught to buy over and over again. I don't think Marx would totally agree with that, certainly not when it comes to art. And, and Theodore Adorno makes a hard distinction between art and um, and uh, popular culture, which, of course, I'm not interested in here. Right. Um and, and certainly couldn't buy in a podcast like this. So for Marx, the base and the superstructure, they're not objects, they're processes. They're relational both within themselves and between themselves, right? So in other words, the base is an economic infrastructure. I like the, the, the translation, the French translation, instead of base, an infrastructure, right? Like a scaffolding that holds the whole thing together. That's what economics are. They, they, they're suffusing everything. They're the underlying bones of the building here, right? And the building can then have all sorts of ornaments on it that may differ from society to society, even if the basic underlying structure is the same. Um, and yet, those ornaments are only supported by that underlying structure, right? But here, 
even that is not a great metaphor because what Marx is concerned with is a set of relationships. That that economic structure, that that, that relationship in which we recreate our social life over and over again and adjust it. Those are relationships that we have, and that we maintain, and that develop, and that there's a process involved. So the basis is that economic infrastructure is a set of relationships among people as productive agents. As we produce, as we make things, or as we do our jobs in the service industry, it really doesn't matter. We are adding to society. We are acting as productive agents. And some of that is conscious thought that goes into it, and some of it isn't. And the superstructure is a set of relationships as well. As you can see, is the unfolding of, of, uh, of music, popular music history with a set of influences and counter-influences and reconfiguring of the past, right? Where Oasis, for example, is a way of rethinking what the Beatles were. So then the base and the superstructure themselves are a highly contested set of complex relationships. So it's not simple cause and effect. Friedrich Engels, the, the sponsor and collaborator of Karl Marx, I think puts this quite well, where what, what he thinks about is, is the idea that uh, as you get further out into the higher spheres of, of culture, like, like art and philosophy, the relationship to the economic model gets more and more, the economic infrastructure gets more and more blurred. Right. And there's more and more uh, other influences that are coming in, for instance, think about with music sampling. Right. And so there's a there's a kind of mediation between the underlying economics, then the legal structures of the legality of sampling. And then what music what happens to hip hop in the late 90s and early 2000s as as those legal structures are adjusting. So it's not a simple one to one relationship here. Marx, furthermore, did not want a separation of thought and activity or of theory and praxis, right? Uh, again, he wouldn't be writing books if the idea was that, uh, that you're just caught up in ideology that doesn't change the economic base. So thought has to have some kind of efficacy. And that's precisely what he thought was wrong with so many approaches to philosophy and politics. It was too often bound up in fighting out concepts in the arena of abstract thought rather than applying that thought to concrete situations. And whether you like Marx or not, this I think is something we can all appreciate. What he wants is thought to be applied to the concrete activity of life. As he famously stated, quote, the philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. The point is to do something with that thought. So thought has an impact it's just not – it doesn't automatically fall out from, from figuring out logical uh, configurations that, that therefore the world's going to get better, right? You have to do things with that thought. You have to apply that thought. So art – one of the things that Engels says, building on Marx, that art does and that therefore I would argue popular music does as well is it gives form to those underlying processes. It gives aesthetic form to the processes of the relationship between the base and the superstructure. And what he says is that within this process, Engel says, quote, the economic movement finally asserts itself as necessary. And I think that's very interesting. That part of what art does, now Adorno would argue against this, that, that art stands to negate culture, that art, uh, true art, and that's why popular culture for him is not art, because it's a commodity, and that true art, what it does is it stands against culture and it says no. But part of, even in Adorno's argument, part of what it's doing is it's working with the materials of its time. And those materials of its time have been conditioned by society and by the economic infrastructure of society. So Adorno, and we can look at this in more detail in another episode, but Adorno has a, an interesting problem to work through there. And he, he of course, knows that and works through it. Uh, but I'm not sure that, that his way of working through it should totally uh, divorce itself from how popular music operates or how popular culture operates. But part of what happens in the commodification of art, whether it's popular culture or not, is that the economic movement, that, and, and notice that Engels uses the word movement, that, that, that set of relationships, that ongoing process, asserts itself as necessary. Art gives it a form to feel like it just is the way it is, that this is second nature, this is the way that we are. 
Now, what we're going to look at next is how that plays out in the music of the 1930s. If what we're seeing is an increasing corporate identity, well, how does that appear necessary within the aesthetic form of music? that despite what might have been perceived as my setup here, that we were going to look at economic changes in the 1930s and how that impacted music, that's actually only partly true. Because the basis, the economic basis for the things we're talking about, and, and the cultural aesthetic basis as well, was really founded in the 1920s more than the 30s. The 30s simply had extra pressure in order to motivate uh, giving aesthetic form to these, these underlying processes. What am I talking about? Let me, let me spell some things out. By the 1920s, there were two things that, that had shifted toward greater uniformity. The school systems and, of course, the workplace under, under the Fordist model, right? The Fordist model, let's start with that. The Fordist model is, you know, hopefully from either other episodes of this podcast or just on your own, involves the vertical integration we were talking about earlier. The idea of the Fordist model is that people get these, basically these jobs for unskilled labor where they're doing one very focused activity all day. And so you have an assembly line. So let's say you're putting together an engine. You're in charge of, of uh, I don't know, uh, attaching the carburetor, I don't know, whatever, uh, to, to the car. And then it goes on down the assembly line and someone else does the next thing and someone else does the next thing. So nobody makes the car as such, right? It's assembled through an assembly line as the thing moves along the assembly line. It's literally moving horizontally along the shop floor and it starts off as, as a small set of components and ends up as a car. And of course, Ford also had vertical integration. The idea of, of his sales, his advertising, uh, and production was all uh, under the same umbrella of his, his company. At the same time, the schools in the 1920s, high school in particular, had jumped in attendance rates. There were a lot more people going to high school in the 1920s than ever before in the U.S. And part of that was accommodated by a kind of averaging down. Those elite high schools started to fade out. Those were the, the more typical things in the late 19th and early 20th century was the elite high schools. Only, only the people who were really going to go on to uh, careers in uh, intellectual fields or, or a higher level business fields would have gone to high school. Basically the rich, right? Now it's averaged down a bit. You have public schools. But part of that was accomplished through uniformity. And I mean uniformity in all possible senses. Uniformity of curricula, uniformity of the desks and the way that classrooms were ordered, and so on. The, the equipment that was available, all of that became increasingly uniform. Now that puts a certain pressure on the entertainment field. Because what, if, if your business and school life is bound up in uniformity of everyone being the same, then there's a certain pressure to find a kind of immediacy in your re relationship to entertainment. And that part of that immediacy should be bound up or seems to have, uh, there was a desire that it be bound up with an increasing sense of individuality, of what makes you, you, as opposed to just another seat in the classroom or another position on the assembly line. 
And so what we see uh, in, the, in the 1920s is an increasing emphasis on the middle class individual as a kind of stand-in for corporate identity. In other words, the middle class individual becomes symbolized or, or becomes the embodiment of a kind of vertical and horizontal integration where the idea is that the family unit becomes, in essence, a kind of small society. This isn't exactly a new idea. I mean, the idea that, that the family unit, that the marriage was, was a kind of consecration in the small of what society was in the large, that goes back at least to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant in the, uh, in the late 18th century. But it takes on a different uh, notion here in the 1920s and 30s. Right? The middle class man is both fungible and distinct. He's exchangeable. He's a, a part of that uniformity. Just another seat in the classroom or a position on the, on the assembly floor. Or, you know, it doesn't matter. It, it could be a higher level job, uh, but, but is exchangeable. And yet at the same time is meant to be distinct. That person is, you know, the, the, the phrase king of their castle. Right? The idea that the family then becomes a kind of corporation. Uh, trying to weather the storms of a turbulent moment in history once the depression hits. And, and the, the man, the male figure in the home, is the CEO, in essence. And so you have this modeling of that in what happens in the late 1920s and, and throughout the 30s in the production of music. For instance, the forms become more and more homogenized. The idea of the AABA form, the so-called 32-bar form, where you have these sets of eight measures, right, uh, that are arranged so that there's an immediate repetition, A, A, a contrast, the middle eight or the bridge, B, and then a return to the familiar. And this is a commodification of familiarity and of repetition. And yet it's repetition that has moments of distinctness. And that's an incredibly important part of the late 20s and early 30s, is a rise of complexity and harmony, especially. This is, after all, middle-brow music. It's music that is meant to be both popular and yet feels somewhat sophisticated. And that's what the middle-class individual is supposed to to feel like, right? He's part of, he or she, uh, is part of everyday society, is up on the latest fads and so on, and therefore participating in, in the popular, and in a sense is exchangeable, right? It's just another seat in the classroom or a place within, within the office or, or the assembly line. Um, and therefore, in one sense, is averaged down, homogenized. But at the same time, the notion is that the experience of this person it has a depth, a complex, uh, a complexity of depth, right? And so here you have in Tim Pan Alley songs of the late 20s and 30s, this homogenized form over and over again, AABA. There are exceptions, of course, but by and large, 32 bar form reigns supreme in this period. And so therefore it's familiar. You can immediately know what the dynamics of the song are going to be. And here I don't mean dynamics as in loud and soft, but the, the way in which the song is going to move, the morphology of it, the way it's going to change and move. And that's familiar to you. And, and you immediately glom onto it. And it's not just that. Part, it's not just the, the musical structure, of course, but even the way in which the title shows up. Right of the song, uh, Irving Berlin, a famous songwriter, says that that you have to make sure that the title is well placed. And what he means by that is that you repeat it several times. Listen to, for instance, um, "My Blue Heaven." It's a great example where the A's sections often end with "My Blue Heaven," right? And so you hear the title over and over again, and it really plants it in your mind. So even where the title shows up becomes increasingly homogenized. But what makes the 1930s, late 20s through the 30s so interesting is that harmonic complexity, the, the little moments in Rodgers and Hart or in Cole Porter or in Gershwin, right, that stand out as this, this little bit of piquancy, this little bit of, of, of this special eruption of emotion or whatever, right? So you have this overall homogenous or homogenized sameness, but within that, is a complexity of depth that erupts almost unexpectedly. And of course, the music is more and more focused on the I and the you, right? It's becoming more and more about this 
this level down. That's not about partying the way that some of the music or, or silliness, the way some of the music was in the twenties. It's not like there were no silly songs in the thirties, but the twenties of course is the era of, of, of these songs that are kind of big theatrical tunes like Swanee by uh, the Gershwins, right? The, done by Al Jolson or then silly tunes. Like, yes, we have no bananas, things like that. The thirties were moving into uh, an era of greater and greater, a sense of the of the directly interpersonal, right? Um, the the way in which I relate to you, and so this is the era of of songs like "I'm in the Mood for Love" or "All of Me." Think about "All of Me" for a second, right? This idea that that uh, you could take all of me and 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 you split yourself, take my lips, I'll never use them, take my uh, my arms, and so on, right? So that you become a kind of sum of parts that can be taken. You can be bought and sold in a sense. You are something that can be exchanged on the marketplace. Just like like if I buy uh, a set of products and I come out feeling like I've enriched my life through this set of products, the human being in that song becomes a set of products. Arms that will embrace you, lips that will kiss you, eyes that will gaze lovingly at you. And at the same time, this music is imbued with a universal quality. And that becomes, I think, especially important. In the 1920s and 30s, things are becoming more homogenized, right? And so this idea of the everyday seems kind of threatening in some ways. It seems uh, dehumanizing. And so this timeless quality, the universal quality to the music, makes it seem like our interpersonal lives, right? And those follow patterns too. Right? We go to school, especially by the time you get to the 1920s, the middle class is following a pretty familiar trajectory. You're a kid, you go to school, you graduate high school, uh, you get a job, you get married, you have a few kids, and that whole cycle keeps going through. Right? Eventually you die and, and so on. And so there seems something almost mundane about that. And so the songs project that onto a kind of almost mythological level, that this repetition isn't dehumanizing it's 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 a journey that is done over and over again but each individual journey has its own individual meaning and so that universal quality becomes a heightened sense of what it is to be an individual and the timelessness of course helps in the great depression because who wants to be in their time in the great depression so this idea that your romantic life that your your cultured life, your your life of of uh, listening to songs and being moved by those songs, that rises above the averaged everydayness. And so, what happens in the twenties and the thirties is that you're moving toward an economy of scale. You might think that what would happen in the depression is that you just spend less, but what the corporations learn is what you do is you you get more and more things under the same umbrella. The radio corporations, the film companies, the, the uh, record uh, labels. And you bring them under the same uh, umbrella and then you just spend more. You, you rise to an economy of scale. You spend more on fewer things. So instead of having the innovation of the earlier 20s, what you're moving toward is more homogenization. And that homogenization comes not just aesthetically, but it comes through uh, the way in which the whole business works. In the 20s, for instance, Fletcher Henderson and his wife arranged their own um, tours with, and contacted club owners on their own. By the 30s, that was no longer happening. Everyone had a business manager. Everything was working within a very smooth and sophisticated business model where all the parts uh, interlocked very carefully. And so it's not a surprise then. As it might be, it just it, it might be counterintuitive to think, oh, 1930s was also the era of swing with these huge bands. Why would you have bigger bands in the 1930s? It's because you have more attention being given to fewer entities. The bands are, for the most part, name bands with famous leaders. And those leaders act as a kind of CEO for the band. They demand order and efficiency. And so Swing and the Tim Pan Alley style of the 30s, they develop a highly regimented business model. And the music reflects that. The band leader is a star in part because he runs a tight business. And indeed, some band leaders were virtuoso players, but many were not. But every successful band leader was a good manager of people. And you can hear that in some of the music, right? Where the music is is ordered, the, these... these um, 
performances are built on a kind of excitement of a well-oiled machine. A good example, for instance, is Sing 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 with a little swing, uh, as, as performed by uh, Benny Goodman. Right. This is, of course, this was a song by Lily Prima, but they do it as this instrumental virtuoso piece that goes on for uh, for close to nine minutes, eight minutes and 40 seconds or something like that. Right. In this very exciting um, arrangement that starts off with the basic song, the A.A.B.A. form, but then goes into all these twists and turns, these variations and episodes and and surprising moments that are really functioning through a series of of climaxes and then pulling back from those climaxes in order to have yet another climax. And the whole thing is undergirded by Gene Krupa's thumping toms on the on the drums. And to some extent you can almost make fun of his drumming there, but what you hear is the machine at work. And it's just driving you forward uh, through the through the whole performance. So the recording is is just one build up after another, more solos, more colors, more riffs, more excitement. It doesn't let up. It illustrates the central belief of corporatism that bigger is better and not just bigger, tightly organized, efficient and overwhelmingly powerful. It's complex music, thickly orchestrated with a lot of moving parts, and yet everything fits. Everything has its role and must fulfill its role for the machine to continue to press forward. This is aesthetics giving form to the economic infrastructure. Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you'd like more information, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or feel free to write me at uh, cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.